Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to teach a class, write his dissertation, and then finally get a job. So today is part three in our continuing series on the history of the Anthropocene, which largely follows the class that I will be teaching this fall semester. And this is the beginning of a two-part episode on the Industrial Revolution. In this episode, we're going to be talking about what the Industrial Revolution is and what caused it, uh, privileging explanations that look at the interaction between people and the natural world. So let's just get started and, and really hone in on this idea of the Industrial Revolution, what it is and, and why it's important. So the Industrial Revolution is, you know, industrial. It has to do with the way that people make things. It has to do with our productive capacities. And the Industrial Revolution is a revolution. The idea is, is that during this time period, there was a massive change that completely overturned the way that we make things. And the Industrial Revolution matters because it dramatically changed our relationship with material goods. Uh, if you right now are wearing cotton t-shirt that's made in a factory somewhere, you are wearing the Industrial Revolution. When you ponder that that cotton t-shirt, the cotton comes from perhaps India, and then it is spun in Southeast Asia and then sold in the Gap, when you ponder that in international division of labor, you are pondering the Industrial Revolution. When you go into the supermarket and you have a wealth of material goods, like, you know, tons of cheap artichokes or relatively cheap artichokes, depending on where you're living, and tons of boxes, and you can just throw things away, that is the Industrial Revolution. And finally, when we confront the major ecological problems inherent in our lives today, when we ponder all of the limits to our continued uh, ecological stability, we are confronting the Pandora's box of the Industrial Revolution. And I, I realize that I've been a bit vague about defining what it is, and that's because people use the term Industrial Revolution to talk about slightly different ideas. Generally, the Industrial Revolution is thought to happen sometime between, you know, starting in the late 18th century in Britain, and at its very loosest, we can, we can describe it as quote, a wave of gadgets that swept through England. There were a ton of leapfrogging inventions in a bunch of different productive processes that all in all added up to a massive change. Primarily, this happened in, in, in what they call the leading sectors, uh, cotton spinning, metallurgy, and mining. Um, in cotton spinning, we have, you know, uh, uh, machines for weaving cloth and then spinning cloth. In metallurgy, we have improvements in uh, processes in, in how we make iron, making it much cheaper. And in mining, we have, you know, new pumping technology that then turns into the steam engine. Now, that's a good general definition for the industrial revolution and if you if you if you said it at a, a a dinner party i wouldn't you know i wouldn't look down on you i wouldn't i wouldn't correct you or anything like that but there's a few things going against this kind of given um 
accepted definition of the Industrial Revolution that is, it's helpful to point out at the outset as, as we go deeper into the concept throughout this episode. Now, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, historical economists were able to reconstruct economic growth rates over the long 18th century, and what they found really surprised them, because what they were looking for was a revolution. They were looking for a takeoff. They were looking for a disruptive explosion in the rate of economic growth. But what they found instead was something incredibly slow, slow and sustained rates of economic growth that began, moreover, a lot earlier than we would expect if the Industrial Revolution was really driven by the massive inventions that started, say, in the 1770s. It started much earlier, this this takeoff, perhaps in the middle of the 17th century. And you don't really see a gigantic explosion in economic growth that happens when Watt patents a steam engine in the 1770s. And the second thing that, that, that should give us pause about this traditional definition of the Industrial Revolution is despite the fact that in these leading sectors a lot of the economy changed, there was still a ton of work being done in what we might think of as traditional manner. So even in the 1850s, when we would say the Industrial Revolution has really come and gone, when there are you know gigantic factories in London and Manchester and Birmingham spewing up coal smoke, the majority of people don't work in factories. The majority of people still work in craft industries, you know, making shoes by hand, uh, doing you know baking bread. Most people do not have their lives dramatically changed for at least like a hundred years. There are a lot of people whose lives are dramatically changed, but they're not the majority of the population. And importantly, they're not the majority of the economy. So that being said, I'm going to go through a number of the key arguments about why the Industrial Revolution happened. And each one of those, those arguments, it's important to note how kind of a different Industrial Revolution that they're explaining. And that's kind of, you know, part of the game. So I'm going to divide these into three rough groups. First, there's a set of explanations that describes the Industrial Revolution as happening when it did and where it did in the 18th century in Britain, because British society was good or lucky or its people were especially smart. The second set of explanations, which we're not going to go through in depth this episode, but you can find it in previous podcasts, is a demand-side explanation, not a supply-side explanation. It's not about um, whether people have you know, the ability to make more stuff. It is about people wanting more stuff. And finally, there's a set of explanations that talks about there being something particular in 18th century Britain in the interaction between people and things, an Anthropocene argument, an argument from environmental history. So first, let's run through the stuff on the side of the ledger that explains the Industrial Revolution as, as happening because of, you know, British smarts or British luck or British institutions. 
So the big idea of this is is simple. It is to explain how people in Britain invented really important things that people had not invented before and how they kept on improving these inventions over 150 or 200 years. You know, we can, uh, a different history at a different time might only tell this story and tell it through a series of important inventors. So we could say, you know, a history of the steam engine and start off with the Newcomen engine in the early 18th century, which was a coal-fired steam engine that was really only used in coal mines to help pump water. But it was really curious. People liked it. It was widely used, but hideously inefficient. Then, In the 1770s, along comes the Scottish inventor James Watt, who has a bunch of different improvements on the Newcomen engine. He makes it vastly more efficient, and really importantly, he takes the up-and-down movement of the pump, and he makes a way to turn it into a rotary movement. That doesn't seem really important, but it's incredibly important. It's a way of turning heat energy from coal, from going up and down, to running machines. And then we would have another bunch of inventions about coal, you know, cotton spinning machines that are, you know, powered by the steam engine. And we'd have another set of stories about the people in the early 18th century, uh, 19th century, excuse me, who improved the steam engine by making it high pressure, which then allows us to have, you know, railroads. And it's a whole big story filled with genius inventors. That's the story that these people on the human capital side of the explanation are trying to tell. And there's a bunch of different parts of this. First, uh, we can talk about the institutionalists. Uh, We might call these the good constitution folks. And the general idea is that Britain had these series of inventions because it had a particularly business-friendly, stable government that allowed people to trust that they could invest in things, to trust that they could build up machines without worrying that the government could steal it. This is 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 particularly a, 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 the, the opinion of the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Douglas North, Douglas with two S's uh, for some reason. Um, now, there's also the wages crowd. Um, Robert Allen argues that uh, Britain had a really active medieval wool industry, and this drove up the price of labor and kind of locked it in. That British uh, laborers actually got really, really highly paid. And because of this, people in the 18th century had big incentives to have labor-saving devices, like the Newcomen engine, like the cotton-spinning uh, uh, machines. And that this explains why Britain and not France uh, who had equally smart people invented all of the great machines just because the inventors in Britain and the industrialists in Britain had more incentive to replace their really, really high price of labor with relatively less expensive labor-saving capital goods. Finally, there is a crowd of people who argue that the Industrial Revolution happened in Britain because of smarts. There's something in the air in British intellectual life in the 18th century that people just got right. You can think of it as, as, as like a Silicon Valley uh, 
explanation that somewhere in the civil society of the time, there was an enlightened industrial, you know, hubbub that meant that experimenting, daring minds like James Watt rubbed shoulders and shared beer with interesting mechanics, and they had enough resources and freedom and incentives to get together and invent massive, important inventions. So James Watt, for example, the renowned improver of the steam engine, he's a great, you know, great poster boy for this industrial enlightenment thesis. Um, He started off as an instrument maker in the University of Glasgow. This is an incredibly highly skilled job, something that we don't even think about today. The instrument makers were a group of people who made all the incredible precision instruments by hand of the 18th century. So they would make barometers, they would make scientific devices, sextants, orbs, and James Watt's job was at the University of Glasgow where he made the experimental apparatus for the science classes. And he started his life's work on improving the steam engine because they had a scale model Newcomen engine that would never work. And nobody understood why the scale model Newcomen engine would never work. And James Watts spent a ton of time trying to make this scale model Newcomen engine actually work. To do so for complicated reasons to do with the, you know, scale, you know, the smaller scale having, you know, lower tolerances. Uh, by trying to make the scale model Newcomen engine work, Watt made the Newcomen engine much more efficient and eventually, you know, improved it so that it, it was a vastly different beast. But he didn't just hang out with the people at the University of Glasgow. He hung out with skilled workmen. Once he got his own shop with Matthew Bolton in the Midlands, he hung out with people like Erasmus Darwin, who was Charles's grandfather. He hung out with people like Joseph Priestley, who was a radical dissenting minister who, uh, 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 was a amateur scientist, but he also hung out with people who made stuff with their hands. And this intellectual ferment was the civil society grounds of the Industrial Revolution. These people talking to each other was kind of the secret sauce that let people invent. Now let's shift gears and deal very briefly with a second set of explanations. Um, This set of explanations argues that it was not a supply-side change that really made the difference. It was a demand-side change. This is the industrious revolution argument. It says that sometime in the 17th century, people started to work ever harder, not because they got really awesome, you know, machines to work with, but because they wanted more of the fancy consumer goods that were newly available on the market. Many of them, let's note, were exotic groceries that came to Europe because of the Colombian exchange. The idea was was that people worked a lot longer so that they could buy the tea and the coffee and the china and the sugar and the wristwatches that were, you know, newly cool. And that this started uh, that very slow but steady economic growth that historical economists were so surprised with uh, 30 or 40 years ago. But now let's get to the crux of this episode. Let's get to the explanation for the Industrial Revolution that talks about the environment. This is really pushed by the historian 
E.A. Wrigley. Um, if you're at all curious, check out his books. He is just a a monumental force in this incredibly clear writer. Uh, it's a sort of book that once you read it, you never get it out of your head. So Wrigley zooms out. He doesn't ask why the Industrial Revolution happened per se. He looks at all of human society from the perspective of energy. What kind of energy is available to a society at any given time? Now, at the very basic, all of our energy comes from the sun. I mean, you get something from, 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 from geothermal sources, but, but really, that only matters if you are like hanging out in a volcanic hot spring. Most of the energy available to us comes through various you know, twists and turns from the sun. You know, the, the most important one is sunlight falls on the earth, plants photosynthesize it. They use that photosynthetic uh, process to make carbohydrates, which are then eaten by humans or eaten by animals that humans then eat. This is it. That's it. That's all of the energy available before the Industrial Revolution. We have a number of leaps in human history from this energy-centered perspective. The first comes from human control of fire, which allowed us to cook uh, plants and animals and have a greater access to more energy-bearing foods. The second is the agriculture revolutions that allowed humans to harness more of the photosynthetic energy of plants by loosely controlling biomass. You know, instead of having to go and hunt and gather, humans could you know, basically make low-tech solar panels by making fields of corn and wheat and raising cows and stuff. That's another way of harnessing energy. But the third big change is the important one, and that is in the Industrial Revolution. This is not, in Wrigley's uh, treatment, a case of genius. It's a case of harnessing fossil energy. It's a case of taking coal, which used to be ferns back in the Carboniferous era, and burning it to extract the fossilized power of sunlight. Before the Industrial Revolution, before this happened, E.A. Wrigley says we had organic economies, organic societies, societies where most, if not all, of the energy came pretty much directly from the sun. And this is pretty inefficient. It turns out that of all of the energy coming to the sun uh, at any one time, uh, plants can really only harness about 1% of that. And then there's even, you know, deeper inefficiencies as you feed it to animals and feed it to humans and process it. And what this means is before we had access to the cheap energy of fossilized carbon, there was really potent limits to growth in any one place. If population increased in a, in a place, let's say times were good, things went well, things were efficient, well, then you'd need to use more land to grow more food. And if you used more land to grow more food, you'd push out the amount of arable land into areas that were worse for growing crops or, you'd, or, or harder at growing crops. And eventually, you know, this would lead to a diminishing rate of return, which would make everybody worse off. 
So you got to kind of push and pull in the distant past. If things go well, people have more babies and, you know, life gets better and, and, and societies get bigger. But as societies get bigger, work gets harder and space gets more constrained and food gets more expensive, meaning that life is worse. For every step forward that a human society takes in, 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 in the grand scheme of, of human betterment, they're taking a step forward towards a cliff that will lead to crisis. This is the insight uh, described by the classical political economists, Adam Smith, Ricardo, Ricardo, and Malthus. This is the world of the stationary economy. To put it simply, we had limits. Often we didn't reach those limits. Often things like natural disasters or wars or crises or, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire would or, 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 or plagues would knock people back, meaning that the good times could begin again. But eventually, always, once you got things at a particular rate of, of, of population density, the bad times would come back. This changes the way that we see the Industrial Revolution in Britain. This is not a story of invention. It's a story of access to new sources of energy. In Britain, it wasn't that you had a, you know, rich civil society. You, you had that, and it was important. And it wasn't that you had high, high, high wages. You may have had that. And it wasn't that you had an industrious revolution. They had that all over. The important thing in Britain was that they had easily accessible coal seams near navigable waterways that meant that people could easily shift to coal when other sources of energy were put under stress. The big thing here was the heating of the house. Britain had really big cities and, you know, it gets cold and people need firewood to heat their homes and to cook their food. And very quickly, Britain faced a timber darth. They faced uh, a challenge to being able to get forest resources within a good enough uh, navigable distance of big cities. But Britain didn't, you know, get cold and frozen. Instead, they shifted from nice wood to smoky coal. And this long experience with heating things with coal allowed them to develop the, you know, technical processes to make braziers and pumps and coal mines that allowed somebody like Thomas Newcomen to know how to use coal as a fuel and to have enough resources, enough of the, 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 the infrastructure in place to use coal as a you know, consumer good. So over the 18th century after Newcomen, a number of tinkerers started to use coal to make new things. First, you had the pumps. And then you had the rotary motion of watt. But it wasn't just a question of machines. It was a question of using this new energy source in a bunch of different areas. You had coal being used to make iron, to bake bread, to make glass, to make beer. All of these were technical developments, and not all of them involved machinery. If you look at 1850, where I said that the majority of people were still, you know, not using machines, working in traditional handicraft methods to make their stuff, that's true. But they were almost all of them using cheap energy from coal. A 
a shoemaker, for example, who might be working quite very similar to shoemakers in 1600, in the 1850s would be using coal, uh, you know, energy from coal to uh, tan their leather and to, uh, in indirect ways, to feed the animals that would make the leather. You know, there's coal in a lot more places than there are machinery. Glass making, for instance, iron making, all of these things might not need machines, but they need cheap energy. And this is what changed the world. The cheap energy of coal made the energy bottleneck of the advanced organic society of 18th century Britain open up. And this meant that 18th century Britain was a new kind of society, a new kind of economy. It was not, as before, an organic society where all the energy came pretty indirectly from the sun. It was a mineral society, a fossil fuel society, where most of the energy came from fossilized sources of heat. And this, for me, is what the Industrial Revolution is. It's not necessarily a development of continuous invention. There'd been inventions before. There'd been moments of genius before. That's not what we need to explain. It was not the result of good institutions or good civil society. Since other places had that. What it was, was a breakthrough in the economy of energy. So let's think of what these stories mean, why they're important to us. So if you are a person who likes the human capital story, if you if you think that the Industrial Revolution happened because people were smart, you know, this is pretty, pretty standard for how we believe economies change right now. I live in the Bay Area, and everybody here is talking about intelligence. Everybody talks about disruption. Everybody talks about working smarter and inventing the killer app. The idea is, is that because we're so smart, because we're so studied, we're able to change the world. And our intelligence won't run out. And so we'll be able to change the world forever. The problems of the Anthropocene will be innovated out of. We will not reach another energy bottleneck because we'll solve those problems because we're smart. We will not dramatically change the climate of the world and kill everybody because we're smart and we'll solve that. We will see the solution ahead. We have faith that this burbling mass of invention and curiosity and creativity will be up for the challenge. You know, some people, some of some of the, the, the writers in this human capital school, they admit the importance of coal to the Industrial Revolution, but they say, look, let's make a counterfactual. If there were no coal, people in Britain would have found another energy source to power their machines. They would have made it all happen by 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 say using water resources and run everything on, on water power. However, the story that argues that this is because of energy points us in a different direction. It suggests that this continued invention of the past 300 years is not because we're especially smart or we have especially good institutions. It's because things are cheap for us and they weren't cheap for people in the past. Information, energy, material goods, these are all cheap. That's why we're taller and smarter and stronger and, and, and more inventive and more efficient than the people who lived 300 years ago and more unequal. But 
the concerning thing about this is that the sources of energy that we're using to drive this big change, they're limited. The oil will run out. The coal seams will run out. And unless we can harness a new way of getting cheap energy permanently, either from the power of the sun or, you know, moving to to nuclear energy, that this moment of material prosperity and continuous invention and enlightenment that, that we live in, this moment of the modern world, unless we can find a source of cheap energy, it will run out, no matter what our genius is. This is much more pessimistic. It's also much more close to the perspective of the Anthropocene. It, it pushes us not to look at the human level explanations for things, but to look at all moments of history as humans interacting with their natural environment. It pushes us not to see the key drivers of things as happening in people's heads, but the key drivers of the world is happening between this kind of weird and polymorphous exchange between humans as organisms and, and the ecologies that we live in and, and, and the earth itself. And I don't know what to think about this in the end. I, I, my, my dissertation research is on civil society. It is on this wonderful thing that we have where we are able to get together and invent and create and make our own communities. I love that. That's what drives me as a person. I love those human stories. And yet, when I think about what really matters, it's not necessarily the human stories. We need the human stories to explain stuff. But if we just focus on the human stories, we don't get the full picture. And the full picture, when we zoom out, it seems to dwarf the human. The presence of really readily accessible coal, cheap coal, means, I think, that even if we didn't have a James Watt, we would still have an industrial revolution. And that's sad because we want to make stories where we're the James Watts, where the things that we do matter. And it's not heroic or inspiring to think that, that, that it's just rocks that matter. Next episode, we will be asking a different set of questions about the Industrial Revolution. Not why it happened, but was it good? Thanks very much for listening. Thank you to Duncan Barton for our art and Jonathan Lear for our music. Thanks to everybody who comments on social media and shares us. It is very helpful and important. Um, and if you like the show, please rate it and review us on iTunes or whatever app you use to listen. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll speak next week. Goodbye.